0: Good morning. I said the same thing in the first service, but you guys did excellent with that new hymn. I really enjoy that hymn and setting the stage for such a momentous opportunity for us to proclaim our Lord's death until he comes. A glorious opportunity, is it not? Amen. 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 If you take your Bibles and open them to 1 Corinthians... Chapter 11. As many of you are aware, this will be our last message in our series, Life in the Local Church. The title of today's message is Communion and Ordinance for the Church. Please stand with me as we read God's authoritative and living word. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll read verses 23 through 32. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus and the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. Also, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, We would not be judged, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Thanks be to God for his word. You may be seated. Now, some of you may be familiar with a little known fact that I love to cut wood not to mention the burn piles that are created and the feeling of satisfaction and completion of that work is second to none. That said, there's one day in my experience of cutting wood that I'll never forget. A day where, unfortunately, as I was pulling brush out of a large pile that I had just created... I did not engage the safety lock, and I proceeded to allow the saw to swing down by my leg as I was pulling out other branches. And by the grace of God, I noticed that the blade had gone really close to my pant leg and gone through the pant leg, although never touching my skin. Never again. Would I take for granted or lightly a tool such as the chainsaw, which is extremely dangerous if we handle it in a complacent manner? At times in life, we all, for different reasons, become too familiar with activities or things that we enjoy. I had lost sight of the respect that the chainsaw deserved. Dangerous indeed, never again for sure. That said, what about the ordinance of communion? Have we at times, or do we at times, lose respect, a sense of honor, a sense of prestige in what we are partaking in? Whether the church practices it every week, every month, for every quarter as we do here, we'd be fooling ourselves to think that every single one of us, every single time, approach the Lord's tabor, table to remember his death with the honor, with the prestige, with the dignity that it deserves. Do we at times lose a sense? Of a healthy fear of the Lord. As for my chainsaw, I had lost a fear and respect of that. Some of you might recall in our series in the book of Malachi, we defined what a healthy fear of the Lord looks like. We said that it is a, a healthy fear, a profound reverence, which in turn creates a hatred for sin and a desire for faithful obedience. That definition in and of itself is a perfect reminder for us as we consider the significance of this ordinance given to the church. Similar to how we examined baptism last week, we'll look at three questions today. Three questions that is my hope and prayer will drive us not just today, but every time we come to the Lord's table to see it with the respect and the reverence that it deserves as we proclaim his death, as we remember his sacrifice on behalf of us, those of us that are in Christ. So let's look at the first question and dive right in. And that is number one, similar to what we discussed with baptism, what is communion? Communion. We'll look at verses 24 and 25 to answer this question. Well, First off, when approaching the Lord's table, we must never forget the magnitude of its connection to the Passover. Paul was referencing here, of course, the last Passover that would transpire. You know the history the history, the celebration of this Jewish feast and celebration that would celebrate and look to this deliverance of 400 years of Egyptian slavery. It was the last plague and the angel of death which would afflict all of the firstborn with one exception. And you know that exception. Those who would have the blood of a spotless lamb upon their doorpost. Would be passed over. This was always the case when it came to ultimate deliverance. Leviticus reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Death would always be the requirement for deliverance. And in the perfect picture of God's history of redemption. It was the broken body and shed blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That was demonstrated for us in a similar manner. What is communion? In a simplistic explanation. It's a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. That said, let's dig a little deeper in answering this question. And you can see at the end of verse 24, this command, do this in remembrance of me. Now, as we stated with baptism, this word remembrance is critical for us, is key for us. We referenced this last week that In many circumstances, there's a reason why we use the term ordinance as compared to a sacrament, and we defined that in detail last week, but in essence, it's this idea of symbolism compared to literalism, or not to mention the act of simple obedience in remembrance compared to actually conveying... Saving grace, you'll recall as we stated and you know in your heart of hearts that Christianity is a religion that is a salvation by grace and faith alone. Always. Any type of sacrament that would convey the sense that it has to be practiced to convey saving grace should always be rejected. This is critical for us in properly applying this ordinance in a worthy manner. As we just read, there is a sense where it can be practiced in an unworthy manner. One aspect of this worthy manner, which is essential for us to briefly deal with, are the words, This is my body. Now, Why is it important for us to address these words? Well, number one, simply that we rightly divide the word of truth. But secondly, there's no hiding the fact that there are approximately 1.27 billion individuals in the form of a religion known as Roman Catholicism, that would vehemently disagree with our assertion that this is about symbolism and remembrance. They would argue and state that this is the literal body of Jesus Christ and the literal blood of our Savior. Scripture will always be our fortress against heretical beliefs that said listen to leviticus chapter 17 verse 10 as we seek to rightly divide the word of truth as we seek to practice this ordinance in a worthy manner understanding what it is leviticus 17:10 reads and any man from the house of israel Or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Or, what about after the cross? We can look to the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15, verses 28 and 29, and we hear For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So the key for us is the same key that would have been for the Jews of Jesus' day. It would have been impossible for any God-fearing Jew to understand Jesus' words as communicating that this was his literal flesh and blood. Why is that the case? Because as we have just seen, it would have been a direct contradiction to what Scripture communicates. Numbers 23:19 reminds us that God is not a man that he should lie. We are not cannibals. Another aspect of what communion is pertains to its encouraging personal nature. I love that great passage of Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. As Paul clearly communicated a personal commitment for himself as he echoed the words, who loved me and gave himself for me. Those of us that are in Christ here today, we can echo those same words as we embrace the fact That Christ loved me and gave himself for me. You know that, my brothers and sisters in Christ, personally, intimately. We all were like incarcerated criminals, sentenced to a life without parole, wasting away in a cell. Of depravity. No hope. But yet then in an ultimate act of deliverance. A personal and intimate letter of pardon. Was delivered directly to you. Those of you that are in Christ. Signed in the Savior's substitutionary blood on your behalf. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Given a circumstance such as this, would we as exonerated criminals ever consider taking for granted a day of celebration like that? Let it never be. As we rejoice and celebrate and remember together, would we ever Consider treating it in a frivolous manner, forgetting its honor and prestige. By God's grace, let it never be. What's more, if that were not enough, look at verse 25, which demonstrates the communion's connection with that of the new covenant. Jesus' quote, Jesus's quote states, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, we must not lose sight that the new covenant was ultimately designed for the nation of Israel. That said, given the pages of New Testament Scripture and, of course, our passage here today, there are indeed implications for us as Gentiles even within this church age. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of a day where the nation of Israel would no longer have their sins be remembered in Jeremiah chapter 31. He stated that I will forgive. The Lord said, for I will forgive their iniquity. Most certainly, in a messianic kingdom, the nation of Israel will realize the full fulfillment of this new covenant. But oh, do we not understand the implications of our iniquities being forgiven? That our sins are remembered no more? Do we not? The significance of that is weighty enough in our connection to the new covenant. Nevertheless, there's another fascinating contextual connection for us when it comes to a covenant. Not only is there a personal component, as we alluded to, when it comes to communion, as we remember our Lord's sacrifice on our behalf individually. But there is a corporate component to this as well, even as we sang about in that wonderful hymn. Throughout the preceding context of this letter, Paul was certainly dealing with carnal pride and division within the church. And that said, whether it's the new covenant or any covenant for that matter, the power behind it, the force behind it is one in which a unity bonds individuals with one another or with God. When we consider unity and walls being torn down and the corporate significance of a covenantal bond, listen to the words of Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 13 and 14, as Paul stated, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. We understand that as the mystery of Christ has been revealed in, in this new covenant application. We are no longer strangers or exiles. But we all are together a part of God's household, united as one. As we come to the table this morning and into the future, can we seek to remember the communal connection, not just the individual In celebration of our Lord's sacrifice, will that drive us to be even more diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in which our Lord and Savior died for? To realize that because of his broken body and shed blood, we can find peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ We can fight for that unity. Embrace the corporate significance as we come to the table. So, we've mentioned command several times. Let's use that as a segue for our second question. That's number two. Why do we practice communion? We'll see this in verses 24 through 26. I mentioned this last week. But as followers of Christ, let it never be said of us that we would take lightly, crystal clear commands of Scripture. I mentioned last week that unfortunately, at times, specifically, baptism is one command that is taken lightly. You know what Jesus said in John chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that said, the two uses of this verb, do this in remembrance, are specifically ongoing commands to the church to practice this ordinance of communion. Nevertheless, I don't want to spend too much time on that. And you might ask, why is that the case, Pastor John? To be honest, I I really don't think this is an issue when it comes to communion and practicing obedience at the Lord's table. Now, we stated that perhaps at times it is with baptism, but I don't see that when it comes to communion, when it comes to true born-again believers' desire to remember their Lord's sacrifice. I truly believe the greater issue here is our lack of attention for the result of that obedience. I would argue this is ultimately, what, at times, what creates our apathy as we approach the table. At the end of the day, we must seek to remember the triumph in Christian living that flows forth from obedience to God's commands. Which, by the way, certainly contributes to the reason why we practice communion. Look with me at verse 26 for an explanation of this victory, this triumph, this result of practicing obedience. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Are there any of us that come to the table this morning broken? How about defeated? How about feeling unworthy? Struggling? With sin? Perhaps this is exactly one of the reasons why well-meaning believers at times neglect the priority of attention at the Lord's table. However, as we proclaim the Lord's death, we find and experience victory and triumph like no other. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, Paul stated it like this. He said, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. As we proclaim the Lord's death, as we remember his sacrifice It drives us to remember this great reconciliation and yet while we were sinners, Christ died for you. Victory, triumph, in obedience. What about that resurrection power that we discussed last week? As we identify in baptism with our Lord, In Romans chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, he said, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Praise the Lord. That is the result of our obedience in proclaiming the Lord's death. Embracing the resurrection power that enables us, as Paul even discussed, as we looked at last week in Ephesians chapter 1. And as Romans chapter 6, that enables us to understand that we are no longer slaves to sin. That if we come to this table broken, defeated, struggling with sin, there is power within you, beloved you have been reconciled. You have been set free. Speaking of that record resurrection, when we proclaim the Lord's death, we're reminded of his victory over it. First Corinthians chapter 15. O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. So sweet. So precious. To taste and see that the Lord is good. Is it not? To know that death has no power over us. As we proclaim and remember his, his death for us, we know that that death has been defeated. On top of that, are there any here today who come to the table simply exhausted with this life? Frustrated with the continual decline of the society that is permeated with depravity, debauchery and wickedness? The increased celebration of sin? Take heart my brothers and my sisters. Not only do we proclaim the Lord's death, but we do so until he comes. We certainly find victory and triumph in his first coming and death on our behalf. But we find even more fortitude in his victorious return. Came as a came as a lamb the first time, did he not? He's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Hallelujah. Why do we practice communion? Because one day we will see with our very eyes our Lord's prayer come to fruition. As we say, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's coming, brothers and sisters. What a glorious promise that is, even for the nation of Israel that will be realized in their messianic kingdom. As the Davidic covenant is fulfilled and Christ sits on his throne on this earth. But the implications are far-reaching and glorious for us as well. As believers, there's not many of us, as I stated, who would ever question the command of practicing practicing this ordinance, be that as it may. Would we commit by God's grace to allow this desire for obedience to fuel our passion for victorious Christian living? Living that would inevitably proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Two components which just so magnificently connect with one of Paul's other charges... To the church at Philippi. When he said. To live is Christ. To die is gain. As we come together to remember our Lord's sacrifice on our behalf here today. As our hourglass of time is sifting away. Can we in proclaiming that death with all of our heart, soul, passion and strength say. Lord Jesus, I desire to live for you. To live is Christ. And then to look forward to say, one day, death has no power over me, and that will be my gain. That said, let's turn our attention to the final question, number three. Who participates in communion? We'll look at verses 27 through 32. Now, I want to save the answer to this question for the end of this point. Before we get there, I think it's critical for us to lay some groundwork on a couple key elements. and We'll get to the answer of who participates in communion. Right away, it's, essential for us to not pass over. One of these great connecting words in Scripture, therefore, this is important in further solidifying the seriousness of not participating in an unworthy manner. Paul is in essence saying, because of these previous truths that we've just expounded upon, Do not practice communion in an unworthy or improper manner. He actually states, you can see, that to do so would make one guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. This term guilty certainly conveys a a legal sense. Jesus used it in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, As he talked about those who would commit murder and their heart would be liable to the court. That word liable being the same word. To practice communion in an improper manner here would be to treat it as menial or insignificant. That's our challenge not to do so. My way of an illustration and I'm thinking of, especially within our American culture, think of the honor and prestige that is afforded to the American flag. And might I add, rightfully so. How it's folded. The attention and care that it's given. And yet... Does our flag even come close to the honor and prestige of the cross? At times, are we guilty of disrespecting, if you will, the Lord's death and how we approach it? This would be an unworthy application of communion. What is it that protects us from that? I know your hearts. None of us desire to do so. We still wrestle with the flesh, but by the grace of God, we desire even today and for many years to come to not do so. In verse 28, we see one perfect safeguard for this. We could make an argument for many others. As for the church at Corinth and us here today, we are called to examine ourselves before taking of communion. In Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 13, verse 5, he even spoke to them about examine yourself in the Lord in order that you might see that you are in the faith. The Christian life should always include examination, healthy Examination. Healthy repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul distinguished between what is called godly grief and worldly grief. As we proclaim our Lord's death here today, do we desire to examine our hearts in a godly manner? Like a meadow being purged of its Impurities, such is the internal examination and the external providence of God, which refines, purifies, and sanctifies the soul. What's more in First Corinthians chapter ten, contextually, verses sixteen and seven. Paul reminds them not only once again of this individual significance but this corporate look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 16 and 17. He says, "Is not the cup of blessing which you bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which you break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, We who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Self-examination is obviously critical, essential for us individually. But it also plays a role in our collective commitment for holiness. As we come together, as we celebrate together and remember Our Lord's death. Now, before we close with a final encouragement, and still to come the answer to our question, do not miss the gravity of improper application in verses 29 and 30. Paul says that for those in Corinth who practice the ordinance unworthy? Many have experienced weakness and seek sickness, and some of your translations may sleep, which is in essence a euphemism. For death, we might say that judgment is inevitable at the table. Who among us is without sin? That said, would we be willing to examine ourselves in a spirit of humility versus pride? Or as Paul, not Paul, but David said in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is key for us as we examine ourselves and by the grace of God, desire to practice this ordinance in a worthy manner, filled with humility and submission to this great God who has yes, wiped the slate clean, but yet in full acknowledgement of our need of daily repentance and examination. And then in verses 31 and 32, the final encouragement shines forth for those who are in Christ, For although examination and judgment, as I just stated, are inevitable at the table. Here's the good news. Condemnation never exists for his people. Paul communicates this very distinction. And the use of the word disciplined as opposed to condemned. For the world. Is this not the desire of a parent as they discipline their child in love that they might be shaped and molded in morality and character? As for us, when we come to the table, God uses our examination of ourselves. As a means to purify a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's his loving desire for you and for me as we come to the table today. If we're in Christ, his grace is sufficient for all of our sins. And because of that reality, we desire to Be examined for our good and for His glory. So, we come to the answer to our question. From what we've laid out in these last several verses, the ordinance of communion, similar to that of what we discussed with baptism. Who participates in communion is nothing more than born-again believers in Jesus Christ. If there are children or adults alike here who have never truly trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, do not take of this ordinance in an unworthy manner. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14, he said that that mind is not even able to understand or discern spiritual matters. That mind is not capable of examining their self, of rightly judging their self with godly grief as we're admonished to do so in the text. On a side note, though, hear my heart here. If there is anyone here today where that is a reality, this table can still be for you today. Might I urge you might I plead with you, receive Christ by faith, turn from your sin, and this table is for you even today. As for the rest of my brothers and sisters in Christ, many as you are, let us reflect on Christ with all dignity and honor as we approach the table. Let us ponder a new hour of victory and triumph in Christ. Let us judge our hearts rightly before God as we seek to examine ourselves all in preparation for this wonderful opportunity to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, your word says, for by a single offering... You have perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You are the author and finisher of our faith. As we come to your table here this morning, Lord, to proclaim your death, We celebrate together. We rejoice together in our victory that is only accomplished because of your victory on our behalf. Discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart, O God, in order that we might be found worthy living a life worthy of being called to this great calling a people for your own possession zealous for good works in the mighty and precious name of our lord and savior jesus christ we pray